I had a unique Thanksgiving. Many of you know my brother Ronnie, who comes to this class quite uh, often. Uh, a few years ago, his wife passed away from uh, brain cancer after a very prolonged illness, and uh, he's been dating a young lady for this last year, and he called me, oh, about a month ago, and said, Chuck, I don't want to make a big to-do about it, you know, get the family all together, we'll all be here for Thanksgiving, why don't we surprise everybody, and before we have Thanksgiving prayer, why don't we just have a little wedding? And so I said, okay, let's do it, and so uh, unbeknownst to everybody, right prior to uh, uh, circling up the family and, and what do we have to give thanks about, I said, you know, isn't it time to make Ronnie an honest man, and... Uh, uh, let's vote on it. And so we voted, and I said, okay, let's have a wedding. And they had a great big cornucopia of flowers, and there was a bouquet hidden right in the middle, and she picked it out. And my wife didn't even know. Her mouth fell wide open. And uh, just my brother, uh, Paula, and uh, my, my myself knew about the wedding. And so then Maureen got mad at me. You know how that works? <laughs> you can't can't lose, can't win. So anyway, we had a wedding at the Schneider household uh, for Thanksgiving. Several of you have asked uh that I would tell you about the experience with the Marines. Uh, two weeks ago, I took a group of wounded Marines hunting. These are combat wounded Marines uh, with the organization uh, Combat Marine Outdoors. They all have been uh, uh, rehabilitating in Brooks Medical Army Facility in San Antonio. I learned about the organization through a young man in our church named Craig Kiefer who took them hunting last year and told me what a, a beautiful experience it was. Uh, on the way to the deer lease last year with Craig and his boy, uh, Craig's boy said to Dad, uh, first thing we need to do when we get to the to the, to the ranch is uh, take these Marines over to the gun range, make sure they know how to operate these these guns. And uh, Craig looked at his son. He said, he said, son, these are Marines. And uh, Brian looked at his dad. He said, I guess that was pretty stupid, wasn't it, Dad? <laughs> And so he told me what a what a beautiful experience it was, and uh, I told Danny, and we took these guys hunting. We had four men, uh, three Marines and one Army. All of them had been severely wounded in uh, in battle in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, one of them's name is Brandon. Uh, Brandon, this was his second hunt. He's pretty much rehabilitated. He he lost use in his arm and may still have, have to have the arm amputated. He was right-handed, so now he's learning everything with his left hand. In his last hunt, he met the CEO of Superior Oil, and uh, he hired Brandon on the spot. He now lives over in Clear Lake, and uh, he's doing just great. He knows the Lord. Uh, uh, very, very faithful. He goes to Second Baptist Church. I told him he doesn't need to drive that far, and uh, he's going to come over here and, and worship with us someday. That's Brandon. Uh, next one, uh, his name is Joshua. Uh, Joshua had uh, burns over 60% of his body. And, uh, of course, when you have that much of your body that's been scarred, you can't sweat uh, appropriately. And so just day-to-day grind for Joshua. Uh, he wanted to hunt. He wanted to be there. Um, I got to talking to him about his faith, and, and he made a profession of faith as a young man, rededication this past year. Seems like he knows about the Lord. Don't know if he knows the Lord. It's not my place to judge. And um, I, I asked him about the experience. He said, when my body caught on fire, he said, I knew I was burning, and I went to the ground, and the Marines were throwing blankets and sand on me. He said, but I don't remember the pain at all. He said, I don't remember any of the pain. He said, I remember how alone I was. I thought I was going to die, and I just thought about how alone I was. And I said, Joshua, that's the most accurate, real experience of somebody who has, has uh, um, defined hell as anybody I know alive. I said, you're telling me your body was on fire and you felt alienated and alone. And that's the way the Bible describes uh, eternity without God. Um, I said, uh, you've been there closer than anybody else 
You might want to think about a good relationship. And he said, I never thought of it like that. I'll have to think about that. So I, I still have ongoing correspondence with Joshua. Another one's name is uh, Nate. Nate had shrapnel wounds through his back and buttocks and uh, is doing pretty good, pretty good mobility. The one I really had a heart for, his name is Chris, and, and I ask you to pray for Chris. Uh, when I got there, Chris, um, this was his second hunt. Uh, the first one, he was just a shell. He wouldn't open up, wouldn't talk. Just towards the end of the hunt, did he he finally open up a little bit. This was his second hunt, and he opened up quite a bit. Uh, he didn't have any feet. He lost his feet in an IED accident. Um, uh, everybody was killed in the Humvee that he was in. He was blown 80 yards from the Humvee. Uh, he put off the surgery. He's been in Brooks Medical for two years uh, trying to rehabilitate his legs, and they, they've determined they cannot save the legs, and they had scheduled uh, the amputation of the legs, and uh, for sure one, maybe both, and he asked the doctors to put off the surgery so that he could go on the hunt, all right? And so I had the opportunity to hunt with him, and I took him to the blind, and we shared a little bit, and he's got a Catholic background and, and pretty dysfunctional family, mom and dad separated, dad uh Alaskan pipeline uh, worker that was uh, hurt, uh, lived in Oregon, uh, uh, no brothers and sisters, and so he's been in Brook Medical without any family contact for two years. And I talked to him about uh, about the accident, and and we're sitting in the blind. I said, Chris, I said, uh, uh, knowing what you know, he's got surgery scheduled either this week or next week uh, to to remove the legs. I said, know what you know now, uh, two years later. I said, would you do it all over again? He said, Mr. Schneider, I would do it all over again in a second. Where do you get guys like that? Having lost his leg, saying, no, I'd go back and do it all over again. At the end of the week, I asked Chris if uh, if it'd be all right uh, when he had his surgery, could I come over and uh, and be there with him and sit with him and pray for him and, and just be there? And he just, tears came down his cheek. He said, you'd come from Houston to do that? And I said, I'd be honored to do that. So pray for Chris. He doesn't know the Lord and a good young man having served our country. And so he's facing amputation of both legs. And uh, I just considered a, a opportunity. By the way, John uh, gave uh, each one of the young men, John, our pastor from our church, a $500 check. They'd never had that on one of these hunts just to bless them, just to say, here's some spending money for Christmas. And uh, they were they were pretty awed by that um, at the at the uh, end of the two days, do y'all know what these are? These are coins that the service give, usually generals or, or uh, colonels. Uh, our church received one from the 75th uh, Army, uh, 75th Division, before they deployed from OST. We were there to help them in the deployment, and General Darby gave us that. And then on the hunt last week, we got a coin from the Marines, and uh, so we have a medallion from the Marines uh, that was given to us. I thought that's pretty cool. Uh, just a thank you uh, for having served them. Uh, the colonel gave me the history of the coin. I did not know the history. Y'all know the history of the coin? I don't know. Uh, he told me that if you're in a bar and uh, if you put the coin down on the bar, then then uh, you don't have to buy the drinks. All right. That uh, that this 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 coin trumps every everything else uh, uh, except the Medal of Honor. He said, if you put this down and somebody has a Medal of Honor and they put the Medal of Honor on top of it, you still have to buy the drinks. To which I responded, well, Colonel, I better get me a Medal of Honor because I ain't buying the drinks, all right? (laughs) Anyway, I thank you for supporting them. Pray for Chris. I look forward to going back over there into San Antonio and being with Chris. And and, uh, already in the last class, there was a guy that says, look, I have a home basically empty in San Antonio. I've got family over there. We can minister to him. So isn't God good in in a wonderful, wonderful way? So thank you for your support. Uh, uh, I look forward to ministering to those guys. Uh, They have sacrificed and served our country. And uh, beautiful, beautiful experience.
Okay. We are in Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah chapter 27 is a little bit unique. I took a little bit of a spiritual detour as I was doing the the chapter because I couldn't I couldn't help but uh, uh, be focused on this this symbol, this icon, this um, uh, thing that God used in Jeremiah to speak to the people. And then I just got to thinking how often in our culture and in our society uh, there are things, there are objects, there are. Uh, uh, objects that have uh, sometimes an intrinsic meaning beyond the thing itself. For, for, for instance, this pen. It, it's not just a pen. It, it, it represents something, and it, it has meaning for me. Uh, for instance, the flag, uh, uh, old glory, the stars and bars. Um, it's not just a piece of material with, uh, with uh, colors and objects on it. Uh, it it's more than that. It represents something. It symbolizes something. It stands for something. And because of that, um, it evokes emotion, positive for some people, negative for other people. Uh, in the world in which we live, there are literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of things that have meanings beyond just the thing itself that would evoke our emotional response in one way, shape, form, or fashion. Old glory is just one example. When I see the flag, um, I think about the two million men and women who sacrificed from the beginning of our revolution to to secure our freedoms. Um, they have given what Abraham Lincoln called a full measure of their devotion. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. Uh, others maybe haven't given a full measure, but like Chris, has given more than their fair share. Uh, I'm grateful for them, and when I see the flag, I think about those who have sacrificed and served. And uh, I'll be frank, I do stop, and I do uh, uh, put my hand over my heart. And I am uh, aware, at least, of the meaning behind the flag. And I'll be frank with you, uh, when I see somebody desecrate the flag, burn the flag, it kind of gets all over me. That's just me. When I see politicians not honor the flag of the country they represent, for me, I get a little bit upset. That's just me. Um, I'm that way with the Texas flag, all right? I mean, uh, um, I come to church here, been coming to church here for 25 years. I work here, and we've got a church, we've got a school across the street, Stutchberry, and they fly the flags. And about three or four times a year, they'll put the Texas flag up upside down, all right? It, they don't do it mean. I mean, they have the kids put up the flag. Sometimes they get confused, and sometimes they put the red end up. And the uh, first thing I do when I come to church, first thing I come to, I look across the street, make sure their flag is right. And if their flag isn't right, I call. I've been doing it for 25 years, and about three phone calls a year. Do the math, all right? I've been doing it so long that when I call across the street now, I said, this is Reverend Schneider from across the street. The secretary, oh, Mr. Schneider, is our flag upside down? I said, yeah, the flag's upside Oh, we'll go turn it around right now. The kids, you know, it's an honor for them to put up the flag, and sometimes they don't know, and it goes upside down. It, you know, it's an honest mistake, but it's still a mistake. If you're going to fly the flag, fly it right and, and get it on there right. It's just the way I am. There are many, many symbols in the culture in which we live. Don't you understand that? You, you see a red cross and you think of a medical help. Uh, that's what a red cross symbolizes. You see a skull and crossbones. What do you think? The pirates, you know. Uh, when you see a, a hammer and sickle, what do you think? Communism. When you see a swastika, what do you think? Yeah, Nazis. When you see the Star of David, what do you think? You think of the Jewish, Jewish people. When you see the crescent moon and a star, what do you think? Muslim faith. 
different signs and symbols evoke different emotions. It's all it's, life is full of that. In political parties, you've got an elephant and you've got a donkey. One's a symbol of strength and power and majesty. And <laughs> I didn't say which one. And folks, I'm just, it's good to laugh. Laughter is a medicine, okay? The coins from the Marines, I think that's kind of cool. Symbols mean something. God uses symbols in the Bible that evoke an emotional response. That's why I took a little bit of detour. I began to realize that and think about that when I, when I was studying this lesson. Any of you ever see um, uh, a person on the country roads carrying a giant cross? You know, I've, I've heard of that two or three times, people walking across the country with, with, a, with a big cross. I actually saw that one time, middle of summer, you know, out on Highway 6, I think, and this guy's carrying this giant cross, dragging it. When you see something like that, what do you think? Come on, let's be honest. What do you think when you see something like that? Raise your hand. Frank, what do you, what do you think? If you were to see something like that, what would you think? Somebody that's committed. You're more spiritual than me, Frank. Okay. Mary. Nuts. Okay. Somebody else. Yes. Insane. Somebody else. Yes. Okay. Good. I'm, way to go. I see that and I go, does that guy got a screw loose? But that's just my attitude. But in studying this Jeremiah chapter 27, I had to do it. I'm sorry, Lord. You know, maybe I'm way, way out of bounds. God tells Jeremiah to put a yoke on. God has symbols that mean something over and beyond the symbol. A dove. What does a dove represent in the word of God? Peace. Yeah, peace. An olive branch. Peace. A sword. War, death, a yoke, bondage, suffering, captivity. That's exactly right. What do you want? I mean, as a Christian, do you want the dove, the sword, or the yoke? Yeah, we all want the dove. Today we get the yoke, all right? There's a reason for the yoke. Israel had been so out of bounds, it's no longer the dove, it's the yoke. Here we are, Jeremiah chapter 27. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourself bonds and yokes and put them on your neck. So God instructs Jeremiah to make a yoke, make bonds, and put them on and walk around with them. That's exactly what he did. Read the next chapter, verse 20. That's what Jeremiah did. I'm sure that they looked at Jeremiah in, in thought, thoughts that are not unlike my thoughts when I see somebody carrying a cross in the middle of the summer down the streets. But this is what God told Jeremiah to do. And, uh, and what I want you to understand first and foremost, that this yoke, the yoke of what the oxen would wear, and uh, when they were playing on the fields, there would be a master directing the oxen by tugging on the yoke. It was a symbol of being under authority. It's a symbol of being a captive, if you will. And so God instructs Jeremiah to wear a yoke, and the yoke metaphor uh, was not unique to the Jewish people. God has 
evoked the yoke metaphor before. For instance, in uh, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, when it's talking about the blessings and curses of God, in Deuteronomy 28:47, speaking of the curses, because you did not serve the Lord, therefore he will put an iron yoke upon your neck. So there you have it. Again, 1 Kings 4.4. Your fathers made our yoke hard. Now, therefore, lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke, which he put on us, and and we will serve you. Uh, you get to 1 Timothy 6.1. Let all who are under the yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of the Lord our doctor, uh, and our doctrine may be not spoken against. Galatians 6.5. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. And then, of course, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. And the, the, the picture there is take your yoke off, the bondage, the burden of sin that enshackles you, and put on the yoke of the Lord. So, in Jeremiah, God is telling Jeremiah, put on the yoke. Uh, you, you, Israel, has not listened to God. Twenty-six chapters of repent for your sin or, or experience chastisement and or judgment. Uh, so now they are under the chastisement, and God says, live with it. That's basically what he's saying here. He's saying, don't try to run from it, or the chastisement will turn into death. That's what he's saying, starting in verse 3. Where the yoke, Jeremiah, verse 3. And send word to the king of Edom, to the king of Moab, to the king of the sons of Ammon, to the king of Tyre, to the kings of Sidon, by the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and command them to go to their master, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall set... You shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth. By my great power and by my outstretched arm, I will give it to the one who is pleasing in my sight. And now I have given all these hands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What's God saying? God's saying, I, God, have empowered Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Don't you try to resist the empowerment that I have put in place. That's what God is saying. My servant, I have given to him the wild animals in the field and the, to serve him. And all the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. And it will be that the nation or the kingdom which will not serve him, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have destroyed it by his hand. He's saying, I, God, have empowered Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you try to undo what I have done. Now, it's interesting, this first message uh, that Jeremiah has been given by God is to the Gentile nation surrounding Israel. The Gentile nation surrounding Israel were entering into league with Zedekiah, how to thwart Nebuchadnezzar, how to not do what Nebuchadnezzar had told them to do. And so now they're scheming, they're making plans to try to undermine uh, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, and God is saying uh, through Jeremiah, don't do it. I have empowered Nebuchadnezzar. You are being judged. This is a chastisement that is for your good. We talked about 
chastisement, punishment, for whom the Lord loves, he chastises. Not because he wants to show us he's a, a mean God wanting to show us who's boss, but because he does that for our good in order that we walk rightly in the world in which we live. And so he's put this yoke on them so that they would learn the lessons that he wants them to learn. And, and God is now speaking to Jeremiah to the Gentile nations surrounding uh, Israel. Can Jehovah God, the God of the Jews, speak to Gentile nations? Well, yeah, of course. Aren't you glad that he does? And that's what he's doing right here. And understand that this is being done by the hand of the God. Verse 9. But as for you, do not listen to your prophets. Who are we talking about? The Gentile nations. He's saying to the Gentile nations, don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, your sorcerers, who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you in order to remove you from the land. And I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nation which will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let remain on its land, declares the Lord, and they will till it and dwell there. And so... Jeremiah, wearing the yoke, is speaking to the Gentile nations and specifically to the leaders of the Gentile nations, and he categorizes them as diviners. That's people who read omens, dreamers. Uh, those are those who uh, uh, dream dreams and interpret dreams, enchanters and sorcerers. Those who, those are those who collaborate with demons, and uh, they do that in order to try to discern the future. Now, it's interesting that, Je- that Zedekiah and the Jewish people had been warned about that. Uh, don't be unequally yoked. Certainly don't enter into league with demons. Uh, uh, Deuteronomy 18.10, uh, Leviticus 19.26, 2 Corinthians 6.14, don't be unequally yoked. Uh, what uh, the light does fellowship have with uh, unbelievers? Uh, what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony does Christ have with Baal? And yet that's exactly what Zedekiah is doing, scheming with unbelievers who are scheming maybe not knowingly, uh, with the devil himself. So that's the historical background. It's no good to do a history lesson without trying to make some application for the country in which we live. Question. We live in the country which has been likened to the most powerful country the world has ever known, uh, the only remaining superpower. Question. Could God put a yoke on America? I heard a resounding yes and even a blink of an eye. So you're saying, yeah, it could happen. We could have a yoke. But wait a second. Aren't we the strongest nation on planet Earth? You're even arguing that one now. Okay. So you're saying resoundingly, yes, God could put a yoke on us. Uh, Interesting, when talking to the Gentile nations here and, and specifically talking about their leadership, it seems clearly that the leadership of these Gentile nations were deceived. Uh, they were deceived, and uh, th- they were sincere. They were serious. They were saying what they believed to be true, but they were deceived. Could our leadership be deceived? Yeah, the big word for that is mumpsimus, be sincere, but be sincerely wrong. You can have a worldview and be sincere about what you believe, but be wrong. I could be wrong. Somebody's wrong. You understand that? Looking at the competing worldviews out there in the marketplace, somebody's wrong. So what the prophet is saying here to the leadership in in the Gentile nations is that uh, they've been deceived. Zedekiah, don't you be deceived by them. So you're saying that God could put a yoke on us, A. You're saying, B, that our leadership could be deceived. Another question. 
Is there a yoke being put on America today? I'm not saying could it happen. That's subjective. You, you said overwhelmingly, yes, it could happen. My question is a little bit different now. Is a yoke being applied to America and Americans today? What do you think about that? I hear a yes. Do I hear a no anywhere? I hear a resounding yes. How so? What what examples might you have about a yoke being applied to America and Americans today uh, in 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 such a way as you would think that's indicative of the fact that we are having a yoke placed around our neck that probably didn't exist in our past? Yes, sir. I'm sorry. The deficit would be a yoke. You got any any more to say about the deficit than that? Yeah, that's one of my my ex- examples, and nobody gave that. Uh, uh, folk, whether you realize it or not, uh, uh, our trade deficit with China, uh, which has been going on for close to fifty years now, uh, it started with Nixon and one ping pong match, and we've 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 literally um, sold our soul. Uh, our manufacturing jobs have dried up in our country. Our uh, our debt service to the Chinese, the Chinese and, J- and Japanese announced yesterday that American dollars last week, American dollars basically worthless. Uh, I'm not quoting now a um, a Christian guru. I'm talking. I'm quoting Donald Trump last week on the radio. Uh, that's not a Christian man. That's just a man that knows money and economics. Uh, he was being interviewed about China. Somebody said, well, well doesn't your policy threaten a, uh, a trade war with China? He said, listen, if we don't have a trade war and have it right now, we are doomed as a people. We have enslaved ourselves to the Chinese people already. And if we don't get this trade uh, uh, thing leveled out, we are doomed to be subjective to the Chinese people. That, Folk, I'm not an economic expert, but I trust Donald Trump to know what he's talking about. That's one example of a yoke. Being applied to it. Why? Because we're too greedy. We sold our soul, got rid of our manufacturing jobs, thought we could get it done cheaper. And maybe we buy the idget or widget a dime cheaper, but we're going to pay a price for it. And we are enslaving ourselves. That's just an example of a yoke being applied to our neck. Anybody else with an example of a yoke being applied to our neck? Diane? Immorality. Yeah, whether you're talking, whether you're talking uh, humanist or whether you're talking, you know, it's different terminologies. All moralist uh, people that have a different worldview than you and I, uh, the the immorality that is taking place in America today, it has a price and it has a consequence. It's a yoke being placed around our neck. For instance, after the elections, I'm listening to a conservative talk show uh, host, and he's talking about all you Tea Party people, you better keep up your guard. You better just keep on voting a smaller government and less taxes. Don't you dare go into the moral area. The minute you go into a moral area, you're doomed. You're doomed. And I thought just the opposite is true. If we don't start addressing immorality in our culture, it doesn't matter how strong we are, we're doomed. Because the God of heaven will see to it, if we don't live by his word, will, and way, we will pay a price. Fifty million children aborted. Call it a moral issue if you want, but I think it's a tragedy. I think it's a horrible tragedy. The list goes on and on and on. We have got to wake up to the immorality in our culture today and how it shackles us as a people. Sharon. 
Yeah, I wrote down, you jumped ahead of me just a little bit, but I wrote down, apathy is not an option. It's not an option. Somebody else, you have another example of wearing a yoke today that perhaps we didn't wear anymore? Denise? Okay, that's a good one. Mary? We'll get there hopefully at the end of the lesson. Peggy? a good illustration, Peggy. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Another good example. Anybody else? Just an example of wearing a yoke. Yeah. Political correctness. You're thinking. You're way ahead of the ball game, Clinton. Yeah, I can't believe it took so long to get there. You know, this whole Muslim issue. I mean, George Orwell in 1984 would be rolling in his graves. He could have never dreamed about America, the land of the, the brave, the home of the free. You know, and now in order to fly to Dallas, we've got to go through a body search. Why? Because somebody halfway around the world hates you. And, and so now you've got to go through the degradation of uh, having, having be searched in such a way that, I don't know about you, but I find it a little bit offensive. But uh, that's a type of a shackle, yoke, being placed on us as a people. Yes, sir? I'm sorry, say again, please. Yeah, I kind of go there in just a second and trying to wrap this thing up. Yeah, Mac. Thank you, Mac. So you're saying that, yeah, it would seem clear that uh, there is a type of yoke being placed on us. Now, understand... Brothers and sisters, friends, the, the Bible describes our ultimate enemy as the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. That's what the Bible says, Revelation chapter 20. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 15 says that uh, he who wages war with the saints has his many ministers. And so uh, it may not look like a red pitchfork and tell people that are empowered by the evil one. They have a whole different worldview than you and I might have. Uh What's the primary strategy of, of the devil in, in wanting to put a yoke on us? What's, the, what's his primary strategy? It's very simple. It really is. It's to, it's to thwart the impact of God's word, will, and way on the lives of us as individuals and, in essence, on the lives of our culture. That's, the, that's what he's trying to do. Uh, has he been successful in doing that in America in the last generation? Most of you would say, yes, he, he has been. Will he ultimately be successful? No, he will not. In allowing him to, uh, to, uh, to be successful, you have to understand that God has allowed that to happen for his divine purposes. You, you see that in the book of Job. What I'm saying to you is the evil one is not sovereign. He's not omnipotent, omnipresent. He's not all-knowing and all-powerful. Only God is. But God will allow the devil to have his way at times. And God has, has supernatural purposes in that, in this case, to chasten, in this case, in order to mature, to grow up, the children of God. We see that in the book of Job. We see it here in the book of Jeremiah as well. Now, folks, before we finish this up, uh, just, a, just a little sidebar, the illustration uh, that I'm using today, it breaks down in this way. Israel had been
conquered by Babylon. That had already taken place. America, at this moment, has not been conquered by the Muslim nations, by the Chinese people, by the humanists in our culture that have a different worldview than the Christians in our culture. Uh, and, and so the, the yoke is not on us, but it certainly seems to be in that process of being put on us by your own, by your own words. So what do we do? Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 13, if it's possible, live at peace with all men. The dove, we all want the dove. If it's possible, live at peace with all men. The problem is, brothers and sisters, that's not always possible. Why? Because evil is a reality in the world in which we live. How many examples do we have to have of that? How many people do we have to throw out their names? Saddam Hussein or Idi Amin or Adolf Hitler or Genghis Khan, even the list goes on and on and on. Throughout history, evil has shown and raised its ugly head. And if good men do nothing, then evil rules and reigns. It's If it's possible, live at peace with all men. It's not always possible. That's why Jude 3 says, Contend for the faith once delivered unto the, unto the saints. For certain persons have crept in unawares, ungodly persons, licentious at sexual perversions, denying the Lord Jesus. Folks, all I'm telling you is this is what you said a while ago, Sharon. Acquiescence is not a good option. Laziness and difference is not a good option. For the Christian, it's to see the culture as it really is and to take a stand. Not ugly, not mean, not rude, not cruel, but take a stand. Use the giftedness that God has given you and said, hey, I don't accept the yoke. I want to be God's person, God's place on God's time. Verse 12, and I spoke words like all these to Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, famine, and pestilence, as the Lord has spoken to that nation which will not serve the king of Babylon? So do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not set the, sent them, declares the Lord, but they prophesy falsely in my name in order that I may drive you out and that you may perish, you and your prophets who prophesy to you. Jeremiah warned the king not to listen to the deceptive mis- messages of his own false prophets. So God sends a message to Jeremiah, first to the Gentile nations, and then he sends the same message to the Jewish people. Wear the yoke that I've placed on your neck through the king through the king of, of, of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, because you've deserved it. You haven't repented. You've, you've, you've uh, prostituted yourself. You've worshipped false gods. And now uh, uh, live under the chastisement that I have placed there for your good. If you aren't willing to do that, the sword, that's what's coming. Do we have false prophets in our culture today? Now, when it's talking about false prophets, it's talking about spiritual leaders, but it's talking about political leaders as well. They think they're right, but they can be deceived. Do you understand there are different competing worldviews in our culture today? And and I would just suggest to you that, that uh, you've got to be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. You've got to understand that there are different competing worldviews out there that uh, sometimes are purported as fact when, honestly, they are very, very much debatable in the marketplace of ideas. Where to, where to lead, where to go. I mean, I wrote down several of them. Somebody even mentioned one of them. Whether you're talking about evolution 
whether you're talking about origins, whether you're talking about alternative lifestyles, whether you're talking about abortion, whether you're talking about economic myths of, of socialism being uh, healthy for you and that government creates jobs. You know, the, the list of competing worldviews is pretty rampant out there. And uh, it's imperative that you've got an idea of what's fact and what's fiction. Uh, for instance, origins. Um, evolution was decreed in 1968 by the Supreme Court that it must be taught in school. That it must be. Absolutely must be. Now, our schools took that and said, okay, that's the only thing we can teach. And that's not what they said. They just said evolution must be taught. We're now 50-some-odd years later, and yet still better than 75% of the American people don't believe in evolution. Why? Because there's some real fallacies with evolution. There are some real problems with evolution. Is there any facts that undergird the other, other, other side? Yeah, there really is. Uh, man, you can get a magazine like Facts, Acts and Facts done by the Institute for Creation Research, and they employ nothing but scientists and, uh, and uh, uh, people with PhDs that give you the other side of the coin. Uh, for instance, origins, the argument of origins. Uh, I recently pulled off the Internet. You know, you, you've got the other people the other side of the world view. Uh, you know, they were studying the Hubble. This is straight last week. They were looking at pictures from the Hubble Space Telescope, and uh, a European astronomer said that they found a new galaxy. They did. Did y'all see this? Found a new galaxy, and they have determined that that new galaxy is 13.1 billion years old. I'm just reading you the facts as they're presented. What did they base that on looking through the Hubble telescope? They found a smudge on the photograph. I'm not making this up, folk. They found a smudge on the, on the telescope. That's what the words they use. The European astronomers calculated the age after 16 hours of observation from a telescope in Chile that looked at light signatures and the cooling hydrogen gas. And so, therefore, they concluded this is new evolving uh, a, a galaxy is uh, 13.1 billion. Folk, folk, that's, that's Tinkerbell and Whoopal Dust and a magic wand. No science to back that up. They saw a smudge, and somebody wanted to say, here's a galaxy 13 billions old, and so we haven't named it, so now you get to name it after me. That's what happens when you discover a new galaxy. Bad science. Folks, some people, in closing, don't want to be confused with the facts. When you look at the rest of the text, Jeremiah, who has addressed the Gentile nations, Jeremiah, who has addressed King Zedekiah in Israel, now addresses the prophets, you know, those who have falsely prophesied. What did they prophesy? We will never be taken into exile. Do you remember that, 26 chapters? It can't happen. We have the temple. We have the tabernacle. We're the, we're the most powerful uh, uh, country on planet Earth. You've been studying numbers with Stuart and heard the numbers of people in Israel's army. I know this is a couple of generations later, but still, it's pretty incredible. But it was all for naught. All for naught. They said there's no way Nebuchadnezzar can overrun Israel and take our temple. Now listen to him, verse 16. Then I spoke to the priest and all the people saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, Behold, the vessels of the Lord's house will now shortly be brought again from Babylon, for they are prophesying a lie to you. Do you hear what these prophets are saying? These are the same prophets that said, never, ever, ever can Babylon overrun us. Can't happen. But it did happen. 
and they took many of the artifacts, the, the icons, the symbols, to Israel. And what are they, I mean, to Babylon. And what are they prophesying now? Well, they're getting ready to come back shortly. All the things that, now why didn't the people say, wait a second, you said this could never happen, you're a false prophet. You lied to us, but that's not what happened. It's as if the people said, don't confuse us with the facts. Yeah, you lied to us, but we'll overlook the lie. We like the fact that all the artifacts are going to come back to us, and that's what you've promised. That's not reality. But the people wanted it to be reality, but it wasn't reality. Do not listen to them, verse 17. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Why should this city become a ruin? But if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now entreat the Lord of hosts that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. Jeremiah is being sort of sarcastic here. He's saying, you know what? Better that you pray to God. That would be novel. And ask that the stuff that still remains, that it doesn't get taken to Babylon. Because that's exactly what was getting ready to happen. Because Israel still hadn't repented. Because Israel still hadn't learned its lesson. Because Israel was still listening to the lie. They still weren't humbling themselves before the mighty hand of God. And so it was as if, don't confuse us with the facts. We want to continue to believe that we know you've proven these false prophets wrong. We know they prophesied it would never happen, and it did happen, but we still want to believe them. Sound familiar, folk? For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the stands, concerning the rest of the vessels that are left in this city. When Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take, when he carried into exile Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of, Ju of Judah and Jerusalem, yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, they, they shall be carried to Babylon, and they shall be there until the day I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. It's not all hopeless. God will use the yoke in order to mature the people, and he will restore them in the kingdom. But until then, a lesson to be learned. Don't listen to the lie. There's still more stuff that's going to be deported because you haven't listened. I don't know about you folk, but I don't want the yoke. I really don't. I know the yoke can be profitable for growth, but I don't want or choose the yoke. Do you? Let's choose to be God's people in God's place with the giftedness that God has given us, asking him, asking him for revival in what the word of God calls a crooked and perverse generation. And, and don't think when I say crooked and perverse, I'm pointing the finger out there. The Bible speaks of revival starting with the house of God. It starts with me and you, me and you. It's kind of like that letter John sent last week. You know the letter? You know the letter I'm talking about? Yeah. Some people got kind of upset with the letter, and somebody, somebody, some people asked me to address the letter. I had some people say, would you address the letter that John sent out? And I said, sure, I'll address the letter. Well, it seemed kind of personal. It wasn't personal. It was sent to 18,000 members of the church. So it went to everybody. What was the purpose of the letter? It's really pretty simple. Pretty simple. Um, 
you got to know your pastor. Your pastor is a good man. It's got a big heart. It's got a gift of giving. That's that's his gift. That's one of his gifts. Gift of giving. And uh, and, and you know we've got this building going on out here. And honestly, the building's a done deal. The only question is when's it going to be a done deal? Are people giving terms of, in in terms of the tune of fifty thousand dollars a week at fifty thousand dollars for the building, just the building? And at that tune, we'll be in that building in three years. Seven million dollars, fifty-two weeks, seventy. 52 weeks times uh, $50,000 times three years, $7.6 million, need 7.2. We'll be in there in three years. John is saying, I'd like to be in there sooner rather than later. And so he writes a letter. And you know what the backdrop of the letter is? The backdrop of the letter is, hey, 43% of the people who call this place their home did not give one red nickel, one dime, one penny to the church budget last year. That's just the truth. That's just, a, and, and that for our pastor breaks his heart because he's your pastor. He's your pastor, and that breaks his heart. So he writes a letter and said, Oh, don't walk into that building, whether it's one year from now or three years from now, and know that you didn't do anything to bring it to fruition. Don't let that happen. Be found faithful. That's the backdrop of the pastor's thinking. The Bible says, Where your heart is, there your mammon is as well. Listen, folks, let's don't kid ourselves. If we're going to be living proof of a loving God to a watching world, what we do with the resources that the Lord funnels through our life is a real issue because it's the stuff that we have which is indicative of whether we really are living proof or not. For where your heart is, there your mammon is as well. And so the pastor writes a letter and says, Be found faithful. That's all he's saying. Be found faithful. Makes sense to me. Don't wear a yoke. Don't wear a yoke. You see, revival begins with the house of the Lord. Don't worry about the crooked and perverse generation that we live in. Look in the mirror and see if you and I are being found faithful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jeremiah's message of the yoke. It's not an easy message. It's not even a pleasant message, but it's a real message. Oh, God, may we, as individuals and in collectively as a church, be found faithful. May we not have to wear a yoke that uh, puts us, uh, Father, in a position of not enjoying all of the freedom that you have for us in Christ. But it would be a yoke of chastisement which has uh, uh, blessing in that we learn. Oh, God, may we learn on this side of the yoke. May we learn and walk in the newness of life that you've given us. In Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, bless you, brothers and sisters. I love you. We'll pick up chapter 28 next week.